Welcome to another episode of That Football Gumbo Show Podcast. I am your host, the Cajun Hillbilly, a.k.a. Lance Vosser. That's right, it is the Cajun Hillbilly with another episode of That Football Gumbo Show Podcast. And let's just jump right into it. We have a national championship game to talk about in the NCAA, and also we had a very entertaining wildcard weekend in the NFL. So let's go ahead and get started with those Cleveland Brownies. Uh, absolutely big weekend for the state of Ohio. So much for the weight of history or practicing or having your head coach on the sideline or an emotional leader on the field. The Cleveland Browns overcame all of it. The burden of carrying the mantle of a franchise that's long been a punchline. A schedule ravaged by a COVID-19 outbreak. A rival that for years has treated them like a harmless little brother. Kicked them around time after time. All of that's over now. For now... And maybe good. The Browns dismantled the Pittsburgh Steelers 48-37. to I was surprised at the whooping that was going on. I could not believe it. In the wild court round Sunday night, picking up the franchise's first postseason victory in more than a quarter century and earning a trip to Kansas City next Sunday. You beat the Steelers. This is your reward. You get the Chiefs and Andy Reid after a bye week. Good luck with that. So the much maligned city of Cleveland... Enjoy it for now. We're going to raise our glasses and toast to you. Um, Good job taking on the Steelers and beating them back-to-back, actually, uh, in consecutive weeks. Playing with first-year head coach Kevin Stefanski, Pro Bowl guard Joel Batonio, and top cornerback Denzel Ward back in Cleveland after all tested positive for COVID-19. Cleveland raced to the biggest first half by a road team in NFL history, Then held on for the victory. So no coach Kevin Stefanski is probably going to be the coach of the year. I'm not sure what it says if he's not even there and the team plays so well. But anyway, without Pro Bowl Bowl guard Joel Bentonio and also without top cornerback Denzel Ward, who actually I just saw has been reactivated, so he might be available for the Kansas City game. But with all those key pieces, the Cleveland Browns still beat the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, Baker Mayfield threw for 263 and three touchdowns, including a screen pass that Nick Chubb turned into a 40-yard score that halted Pittsburgh's momentum after the Steelers pulled within 12. Kareem Hunt added 48 yards and two TDs on the ground, while Cleveland's defense forced five turnovers to hand the Steelers a staggering loss. The victory was the Browns' first postseason triumph of any kind since beating New England on New Year's Day 1995, three months before Mayfield was born. And their first playoff win on the road since December 28, 1969. Some history was definitely made here. The significance wasn't lost on special teams coordinator Mike Prefer, a Cleveland native who found himself filling in when Stefanski tested positive for the COVID-19 virus. Cleveland did did it despite practicing just once over the last two weeks and having seven, having lost 17 straight at Heinz Field. Um, the Browns did it with efficiency and swagger. They did it with uh, Mike Pryfer at the controls and offensive coordinator Alex Van Pelt taking over the play-calling duties as Stefanski watched in his basement back in Ohio. The Steelers certainly helped, ending a season in which they started 11-0 with a thud that could reverberate over years. Ben Roethlisberger ended his comeback season by throwing for 501 yards on an NFL record, 47 completions with four touchdowns, and also the big problem for interceptions to go along with it. And over and over. 
and the NFL's third-ranked defense could do little to stem the tide. The Steelers led the NFL in sacks but failed to get to Mayfield. Cleveland's 48 points were the most Pittsburgh has given up in the playoffs, surpassing the 45 to Jacksonville in 2017 playoffs. Pittsburgh's problem started on the first play from scrimmage when center Marquise Pouncey snapped a sailed past Roethlisberger into the end zone. Cleveland's Carl Joseph fell on it for a touchdown. Roethlisberger threw three first-half interceptions, two of which led directly to Brown's scores. By the time the Steelers found their footing, they were down 28-0. Even when they did get it going on a one-yard touchdown by James Conner with 1.44 to go in the half, the Browns stormed right back. Mayfield capped a cathartic opening half with a masterful 64-yard drive that ended with a seven-yard toss to Austin Hooper with 34 seconds remaining. Pittsburgh countered with a field goal in the closing seconds, but trailed 35-10 at the break. Quite shocking. Pittsburgh tried to claw back in it. They um, pulled within 35-23 at the end of the third and facing a fourth and one at the Pittsburgh 46. On the first play of the fourth, Tomlin opted to punt. The kick bounced to the end zone for a touchback, and Mayfield calmly took Cleveland 80 yards in six plays against this Pittsburgh Steelers defense. The sideline erupted as Chubb streaked into the end zone on that um, that screen pass. So much for the Browns being the Browns. A winking assessment Steelers wide receiver Juju Smith-Schuster made about Cleveland in the middle of the week. Regardless of the intent, Smith-Schuster said after the game he did not regret it. Mayfield and all-pro defensive end, Miles Garrett, Took it to heart. So Smith Schuster once again giving the other, giving the opponent some bulletin board material. Um, Shushu uh, Juju uh, might call him Shushu now. Shushu Juju um, still showing a, a bit of uh, a lack of maturity coming into the league at a very early age and being around Antonio Brown for the time that he was. And now I think it's starting to rub off on Chase Claypool making some comments and then um, bothering to. Uh, to celebrate whenever uh, Pittsburgh is still down by so much. But um, this um, Mike Tomlin can't be too impressed with what he sees from his wide receiver core, but some very impressive early exits. Um, very concerning for Mike Tomlin. You got beat by Blake Bortles and the Jags, and um, now you got beat by the Cleveland Browns. In front of a mostly empty stadium and a national audience, so accustomed to seeing them stumble, the Browns, who didn't win the game in Garrett's first season, took out their frustration by landing one haymaker after another against this Pittsburgh Steelers team. Will Ben Roethlisberger return? He is set to make $41 million next season. If he does, that will likely have to be restructured if the Steelers want him back at this point. But uh, back to the Browns. They did a good job of uh, shuffling their offensive line with Joel Batonio out, one of the uh, better guards in the league. And um, really keeping things together with the with the O line played really well. Um, the Steelers O line has not played well this year. They have not been able to run the ball on a consistent basis. It started out hot, but um, they were undefeated. But that was probably one of the um, least impressive undefeated streaks that we have seen. And then just started to crumble, uh, crumble in the second half of the season. And then we finally see, yeah, they did have some injuries on the defensive side of the ball, but um, toward the end of the season. Defense just started to play not so great. And uh, maybe they should have uh, actually tried to knock out the Browns in that Week 17 game instead of starting so many backups, not having a bye week. But uh, tell you what, the Brownies dominating the Steelers was certainly a shocking thing to see. Also, another team exacting some revenge, the Ravens exact some revenge over the Titans for last year's loss. 20-13 to 20 to 13 is your final. The Ravens finally... 
Lamar Jackson actually finally gets the playoff win. The Ravens snapped the string of 21 straight games lost by the franchise in either the regular season or playoffs when trailing by 10 or more. They will play um, Buffalo in this weekend's divisional game. And what they did was they stopped King Henry, which is not an easy thing to do because uh, Henry for the Titans has been running against us. Even if the boxes are stacked against them, he still managed to get his yards. But the Ravens having Brandon Williams and Calais Campbell back in the lineup made all the difference in the world. And they were able to stop Henry time and time again for a limited amount of yards. Um, last year, the All-Pro had ran all over the Ravens with 328 yards rushing combined in the past two meetings with both Calais Campbell and Williams back on Baltimore's D. Henry had his worst performance this season with 18 carries for 40 yards. Lamar Jackson, on the other hand, ran for 136 and a 48-yard touchdown run while throwing for 179 more as the Ravens rallied from 10 points down and beat the Tennessee Titans 23-13, 20-13 Sunday in their AFC wildcard game. Baltimore also held Tennessee to its fewest points all season. The Titans had the ball and the chance to tie when Marcus Peters intercepted Ryan Tannehill's pass intended for Khalif Raymond with 1.50 left to go. After the turnover, the Ravens came into the field and started waving goodbye to the Titans, drawing a taunting penalty that they didn't mind so much. Baltimore also slowed a Tennessee offense that tied for fourth, averaging 30.7 points a game and had more offensive yards per game during the season than any team but the but but Kansas City the Ravens finished with a 401 to 209 yards edge in total offense the Titans lost their first home playoff game in 12 years and now have had three of their past eight postseasons ended on their own field by Baltimore Tennessee sacked Jackson five times unbelievably and got an interception most of that was Jackson probably dancing around because Tennessee does not have a pass rush the Titans couldn't slow Jackson enough after halftime Jackson turned in the six 100 yard rushing game by a quarterback in the postseason and joined Colin Kaepernick with two the Titans took a 10 to zip lead with Tannehill tossing a 10 yard pass to Pro Bowl wide receiver A.J. Brown Stephen Goskowski kicked the field goal set up by Malcolm Butler's interception, his first in the postseason since picking off Russell Wilson in Super Bowl 49 to preserve New England's win over the Seahawks. Baltimore's defense, the second stingiest scoring unit in the NFL, then took over. The Ravens held Tennessee to minus seven yards in the second quarter, the third fewest in any quarter of a playoff game since 2000. The 2019 NFL MVP set up a 33-yard field goal by Justin Tucker with a 28-yard pass to Marquise Hollywood-Brown. Jackson then tied it by breaking loose for a 48-yard touchdown run, diving for the pylon, the second-longest touchdown run by a QB in the Super Bowl era behind Kaepernick's 56-yarder for the 49ers against the Packers on January the 12th, 2013. Rookie J.K. Dobbins made it 17-10 with a four-yard touchdown run to open the third. That gave him a rushing touchdown in seven straight games, second only to Maurice Jones-Drews, eight in 2006 since the 1970 merger. The Ravens missed a chance to pad their lead when Tucker, with an NFL best 90.7% uh, kicking percentage on field goals, missed a 52-yarder wide right early in the fourth. Tucker had made 48 straight field goals in the fourth quarter or overtime since his last miss from 55 yards, December the 6, 2015, in a loss to Miami. This game pitted the NFL's top two rushing teams against each other, and the Ravens won that category also. Baltimore had a 236-51-251 edge in yards and had 13 first downs rushing compared to only one for Tennessee. So this was another 
um, tradition of big physical line play for Tennessee and Baltimore, just an attitude. Um, and would did Arthur Smith, uh, the offensive uh, coordinator for the Titans, did he kind of check out early, kind of worried about, you know, his interviews possibly. Um, but it definitely was not an impressive performance by the Tennessee Titans because usually Derrick Henry has managed to get his some way, somehow, even against stacked boxes. But Baltimore, um, with all they went through this season, with the injuries and the COVID-19, losing a left tackle Staley, um, they battled back. All the credit in the world, they battled back. You still want to see Lamar Jackson throw the ball a little bit better. But uh, the matchup against the Bills and containing Josh Allen for the Ravens defense will be a tall order and one that we sure as football fans are all looking forward to seeing. The Buffalo Bills come off a um, rather uh, a bit of a scare against this uh, Colts team. Quarterback uh, Josh Allen and safety Micah Hyde teamed up to make the Bills uh, losing past history. Now, do you believe Bill, Bill, Eve, Buffalo, Bill, Eve? Do you believe in a season in which the Bills busted numerous slumps, Allen became Buffalo's first starter in a quarter century to win a playoff game? Wow. The Buffalo Bills and the Cleveland Browns are in the playoffs, folks, and they're winning. Micah Hyde ensured the Bills would not endure another second-half collapse, as happened last year in a wildcard loss to Houston or a last-second touchdown with Buffalo the AFC East champs for the first time since 95 and hosting their first playoff game since 96. Josh Allen threw two touchdown passes and scored another rushing and leading the Bills to a narrow 27-24 victory over the Indy Colts in a wildcard game. High batted down Phillip Rivers' desperation pass as time ran out and helping Buffalo snap an 0-6 postseason skid by winning its first playoff game since a 37-22 win over Miami on December 30th, 1995. And the win came with a limited number of fans in attendance for the first time this season. 6,700 football fans on hand for this one. Josh Allen finished 26 of 35 for 324 yards with a five-yard touchdown to Dawson Knox and a 35 beautiful dart to Stephon Diggs, which had the fans chanting MVP, MVP to celebrate the first Buffalo player to lead the NFL in catches and yards receiving. The Colts ended a season in which they won 11 games for the first time since 2014 and reached the playoffs for the second time in three years under head coach Frank Reich. Rivers finished the day 27 of 46 for 309 yards and had his playoff and had his career playoff record drop to five and seven in completing his first and potentially last season with the Colts as he ponders retirement. Losing doesn't get any easier for the 39-year-old who has reached the conference championship just once since 2008. The game wasn't decided until the final play when Rivers faced 4th and 11 from the Buffalo's 47. Rivers heaved a deep pass for T.Y. Hilton, who was surrounded by defenders in the right side of the end zone. Hyde broke through the crowd of bodies, leaping up and batting the ball to the ground. Rookie kicker Tyler Bass accounted for the decisive points by hitting a 54-yard field goal to put Buffalo up 27-16 with 8.08 remaining. How about that rookie kicker with the big old brass balls? Hitting that 54-yarder, the Colts responded with the seven-play, 75, with the seven-play, 75-yard drive capped by a nine-yard touchdown pass to Pascal Zach Pascal. After Bass upped Buffalo's lead 
27-16. The Colts scored less than two minutes later. Rivers hit a wide-open Jack Doyle for a 27-yard touchdown, and Doyle caught a two-point conversion. The Bills, however, didn't make it easy with Allen nearly losing a fumble in midfield when sacked for a 23-yard loss by Danico Autry on first down from the Indianapolis 37. Offensive lineman Darrell Williams, however, recovered, forcing the Bills to punt with 2.30 remaining. The Colts were limited to a touchdown and field goal in the first half after having all five drives cross midfield and drawing a nine-plus-minute edge in time of possession. The turning point came when the Colts, up 10-7, were unable to score on four snaps inside Buffalo's four. Rivers' pass for Michael Pittman glanced off the diving receiver's fingertips on fourth down. Buffalo responded with a 10-play, 96-yard drive capped by Allen's five-yard keeper with 14 seconds left in the half, which was a backbreaker. So nice defensive stand by Buffalo, and then they turn it into points with a long drive, and Allen with the keeper. Um, He is your main threat for the Bills in the running game. If I had to pick uh, one flaw that maybe I was a little bit concerned about with the Buffalo Bills, it is a lack of a traditional running game and getting their running backs involved. They're a little bit really heavy uh, on Josh Allen. Looking at the Kansas City Chiefs, if these teams eventually do meet in the AFC Championship game, at least the Chiefs have a bit of a more um, traditional contributing role from their running backs. Pat Mahomes can move around and pick up a first down here and there, but they don't seem to be completely or as reliant on Mahomes running the ball as the Bills are. So congratulations to the Bills. Um, One miscue. A Colts miscue also helped extend a drive facing a fourth and three from the Colts 26. Allen threw, Allen drew defensive end. Kamiko Ture offside with a uh, second left on the playcock. That was a backbreaker. Left tackle Anthony Costanzo for the Colts announced that he is retiring. Had a very underrated career. Um, wasn't um, a big uh, Ballyhood celebrated player, but he was uh, steady at that position, at a very key position. Um, so now does Philip Rivers return and try to run it back one more time? Or do they perhaps try to um, trade for Matt Stafford or perhaps in the draft trade up for like a Trey Lance type young one, wonder kind? Do they go ahead and um, give Jacoby Brissett another chance to try and win that job outright? And um, are they going to need to replace two. They're going to have two big needs to replace, left tackle and quarterback. So the Colts go into the offseason. You know, um, they can be a little bit positive about the contributions from their young players that got exposed to their rookies. Jonathan Taylor started off slow but ended with a bang. And Michael Pittman definitely made some plays for them. Um, it would be great to also see maybe perhaps former Ohio State wide receiver Paris Campbell stay healthy and see what he can do. Um, Quentin Nelson, the all-world left guard, some speculation that he could probably move to left tackle. But then the problem is you get weaker at two positions um, if you do that because he is like the best guard in the league. Rams and Seahawks. Oh, boy. This is a division battle. Um, Seahawks come in favored, but I thought this was probably a game that they could easily lose. And guess what? They do. Quietly, Aaron Donald. Jared Goff and the rest of the Rams seethed. They watched less than two weeks ago as the Seattle Seahawks loudly celebrated the division title. The Rams felt that they gave away. L.A. desperately wanted another shot, and they got it. Behind a lot of Cam Akers churning yards on the ground and mostly a great defense, the Rams are moving on in the NFC playoffs at the expense of the Seahawks. Cam Akers rushed for 131 yards. And a touchdown. Darius Williams returned Russell Wilson's interception 42 yards for the score. 
And the Rams beat the Seahawks 30-20 in the NFC wildcard playoff game on Saturday. The best defense in the league during the regular season carried its dominance into the playoffs, even while missing unanimous all-pro tackle Aaron Donald for much of the second half. No team was better at limiting yards or points than the Rams, and they continued to torment Russell Wilson and the Seahawks. Seattle's quarterback was under siege from the defensive front and the secondary that uh, minus one player never let DK Metcalf, um, minus one play never let DK Metcalf or Tyler Lockett break loose. Donald, before leaving the game with a rib injury, and Jalen Ramsey were superb, but so were the other role players such as Troy Reader, Jordan Fuller, and especially Leonard Floyd, who's paid off big for them after taking a flyer on him after Chicago got impatient with his development. And maybe the system just fits him a little bit better. Floyd had two of the Rams' five sacks, Two of the others belong to Aaron Donald. The Rams allowed just 278 total yards and 11 first downs. The victory sent the Rams into next week's divisional playoff round, likely a top seed um, a defense, uh, again, uh, you know, against Green Bay. So that's going to be a, definitely a fun one to watch. The Rams' defense against uh, Green Bay's offense and Aaron Rodgers. Definitely looking forward to that matchup. Williams' third interception against Wilson after picking him off twice in Los Angeles came as he jumped a wide receiver screen intended for Metcalf and returned it untouched for a 13-3 lead midway through the second quarter. I hate those plays. I mean, I hate throwing the ball horizontal at all, especially to DK Metcalf whenever his um, money play and the thing he's good at is using that size and speed downfield. And um, later on, we would see that offensive coordinator Brian Schottenheimer did indeed uh, get the boot there in Seattle. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. Cam Akers for the Rams added a five-yard touchdown run just before halftime for a 20-10 lead. It proved enough against a Seattle offense that was disjointed and confused nearly from the start. Wilson had one of his worst playoff had one of his worst playoff performances. He was only 11 of 27 for 174 yards. That is not going to get it done. And Russell Wilson is better than this, but completing only 11 passes. That's another reason they shot Heimer and got the boot. Wilson had connected with Metcalf on a pair of touchdowns, a 51-yarder in the first half on a broken play. Because too often, that's what has to happen in Seattle's offense is it's a broken play and Russell Wilson just kind of ad-libbing. And a 12-yard touchdown with 2.28 left to make the score more respectable because it really wasn't even that close. Seattle never played with the lead and was 2 of 14 on third down conversions. 2 of 14. Its first home playoff game in four years was a dud without its raucous home crowd and the Seahawks saw their 10-game home playoff win streak snapped. Their last home playoff loss came in January 2005 to the St. Louis Rams. The Rams pulled off the upset without a healthy quarterback for more than three quarters. John Walford started for the second straight week but injured his neck when he dived headfirst in the first quarter and was hit in the helmet by Jamal Adams' shoulder. Wolford was taken to a hospital as a precaution, but McVay said he was in the locker room celebrating after the victory. Goff took over less than two weeks after undergoing surgery on his right thumb. He was injured in Week 16, lost to Seattle. Goff didn't do anything spectacular, but also avoided major mistakes. He was 9 of 19 for 155 yards. He capped the victory with a 15-yard touchdown pass to Robert Woods with 4.46 left after Seattle's DJ Reed fumbled a punt. Akers, the Rams' rookie ball carrier, was outstanding. After not playing two weeks ago, Akers had the best rushing day by a Rams running back since Marshall Falk went for 159 against Philadelphia in January of 2002. The Rams finished with 164 rushing yards. Speaking of offensive coordinator Brian Schottenheimer for the Seahawks being fired, he's great if uh, you want to run the ball all the time. He's a great running game coordinator. 
However, in today's NFL, you want to pass the ball a little bit better. And their passing game is just too disjointed. They need to improve there in their passing schemes because they're not very impressive there. And I don't know if Brian Schottenheimer is going to get another job as an OC. Uh, maybe he might get a job as um, maybe like a running game coordinator. But as far as having anything to do with the passing game, hmm, it's not good, my friend. It's not good. Um, and Pete Carroll, <sighs> this is where it gets a little bit interesting because Pete Carroll wants to He's old school. He wants to return to having a balanced attack and a balanced running game, which is fine. Some teams do that really well. Um, Look at the Saints. They do a great job of staying balanced. There's a lot of teams that stay balanced, but their passing game looks better than what Seattle has looked like. Too often, as I stated earlier, it's broken plays and Russell Wilson moving around and ad-libbing, just hoping that Metcalf or Lockett gets, gets open deep. Moving on to the Saints and the Bears. The Saints would take it 21-9 in New Orleans. Drew Brees will get a chance to celebrate his 42nd birthday by preparing for a playoff game that will also feature one of uh, the other active uh, NFL quarterback older than him, uh, Tom Brady. Brees completed 28 of 39 passes for 265, connecting with Michael Thomas, who returned and caught his first touchdown uh, in a while. And Latavius Murray also caught a touchdown. And the New Orleans Saints defeated the Bears 21-9 in the NFC wildcard game on Sunday. The victory for the Saints and Brees, who turns 42 on Friday, sets up a divisional round meeting. Another in-division meeting with their opponent, the Buccaneers, who they will face for the third time. The Saints managed to win both previous games, but it feels a little bit different this time. I know the Buccaneers are still not very impressive with their running game, but Tom Brady seems like he's more in sync with his receivers than they were earlier in the season facing the Saints. But uh, I would love to see Trey Hendrickson return. He wasn't available in this one versus the Bears, but he leads the Saints and sacks with 13 and a half. Yo, go white guy. You don't see too many white guys leading their teams in sacks, but hopefully he'll be back. And he is eight against the uh, Buccaneers offensive line in the past. Alvin Kamara rushed for 99 yards and added a three-yard touchdown run in the fourth quarter after sitting out the regular season finale and not practicing this past week because of contracting COVID-19. The Bears put forth a scrappy, I didn't say crappy, I said scrappy performance defensively that prevented the Saints from building more than a one-touchdown lead until Murray's six-yard catch-and-run made it 14-3 late in the third quarter. That score resulted from a big Bears mistake. Safety, Eddie Jackson lined up for an apparent blitz, jumped offside on fourth and three from the Bears' 13-yard line. Two plays later, Bree scrambled right and spotted Murray waving for the ball. Bree sent a short pass over on rushing linebacker Khalil Mack and Murray sprinted straight to the goal line, diving through converging tacklers to reach the end zone. Breeze's first touchdown pass in the open quarter was 11 yards over the middle to Michael Thomas, back from a three-game absence to help heal a nagging ankle injury. The 2019 Offensive Player of the Year missed nine games this season and had not caught a touchdown pass since December 2019. Wow. Thomas finished with five catches for 73 yards, and Deontay Harris back from a neck injury, caught seven passes for 83 yards. So I was pleasantly surprised to see them get Harris involved. And with his speed, nice to see him make a few moves there, had a few little nifty moves. 
Tayshawn Gibson set up the Chicago's first points and might have prevented a Saints score on the same play. He got his hand on the ball as Taysom Hill attempted to throw deep. The ball fluttered a few yards in defensive lineman John Jenkins caught it, setting up Cairo Santos's 36-yard field goal to make it 7-3. But the Chicago offense struggled against a defense ranked fourth in the NFL. Mitch Trubisky was 19 of 29 for 199 yards and one inconsequential touchdown pass to Jimmy Graham as time expired. The Bears were held 248 yards rushing. One devastating near miss. It was one of the it was one of Coach Matt Nagy and offensive according to Bill Lazor's best calls of the season. The Bears lined up in one of their go-to running formations with running back David Montgomery taking the snap in the Wildcat. And Trubisky out to the right at wide receiver. Montgomery handed it off to Cordero Patterson, headed right, and Patterson pitched to Trubisky going in the opposite direction. It worked perfectly until it didn't. Javon Williams had more than a step on Saints safety Marcus Williams and cornerback Marshawn Lattimore going into the end zone, but the ball dropped between his arms and fell harmlessly to the turf. Now, the Bears practiced it all week and waited until the perfect time to spring it, and they sprung it at the perfect time, and it was open, and it was there, and Williams just dropped the damn ball, and it was devastating. One of the Saints defenders I saw were clapping and laughing. The Saints never previously allowed fewer than 14 points in a playoff game. The defense stepped up in a big way, even without uh, their sacks leader, Trey Hendrickson. Bears uh, receiver Anthony Miller was ejected for shoving Saints defensive back C.G. Gordon-Johnson, a.k.a. C.D. Deuce. And he's good at that. He's good at getting under your skin. So Anthony Miller was ejected after a failed third down play earlier in the second half. Gordon Johnson also was flagged for unsportsmanlike conduct, but not ejected. He's such a heel, man. He's embraced it. Love it. That marked the second time this season that a Bears player was thrown out for action taken against Gordon Johnson after the whistle. During a regular season meeting, Bears receiver Javon Williams was ejected and suspended two games for punching Gordon Johnson. I'd like to know what he's telling these guys in the field, man. It is hilarious. So, um, the Bears had made the announcement they are keeping... Ryan Pace, the general manager, and Matt Nagy, the head coach. So you Bears fans, go ahead and commence with the eye rolling here. Did see David Montgomery get going. The running back, he is impressive. Um, they got their running game going a little bit, and reinserting Mitch into the lineup allowed them to do some extra things that they couldn't do with Nick Foles. Um, although they did get a little bit better and make the playoffs, I'm sure the Bears fans will be griping about the decision to bring these guys back. They will have to look for another defensive coordinator, Chuck Pagano, Announced that he was retiring. Chuck's a good guy. Played, a, you know, coached for the Colts for a little bit. Wasn't always the best game manager or play caller. But he's been a great defensive coordinator. Um, had the battle with cancer. Remember the whole Chuck Strong thing whenever he was the coach of the Colts. But anyway, it was a nice career for Chuck. I believe he also coached defense for the Baltimore Ravens there for a little bit. But his defense has always been uh, right up there, it seems like, in the um, in the top half of the league. Um, the Dallas Cowboys on Friday fired coordinator Mike Nolan, defense coordinator Mike Nolan, and line coach Jim Tomsula. Remember how much of a disaster it was whenever Jim Tomsula was the 49ers head coach there for a while? That was horrible. Um, these moves come less than a week after the team finished 6-10 and 10 and failed to make the playoffs. Nolan's defense was plagued by injuries and ineffectiveness all season. Starting with tackle Gerald McCoy's season-ending injury in training camp, the team allowed a franchise worst 473 yards in the 16-game regular season. That figure put them 28th in the NFL in scoring defense. The unit was also 31st against the run, a likely primary factor in uh, letting uh, Tom Sula uh, go. 
and uh, they move on, and it's been announced they hire former Atlanta head coach Dan Quinn. Um, don't know if that's going to improve things. Dan Quinn may be a better defense coordinator than head coach. But curiously, while he was in Atlanta, every time he gave up control, the Atlanta Falcons got a little bit better and a little bit better, and their defense actually seems to be better, at least playing better temporarily under Raheem Morris. So Dan Quinn was a pretty good defensive coordinator whenever he was with Seattle, but again, if you have the pieces and if you have the players, um, very good players in defense, that's two different things that can help your scheme work, that sort of deep cover three. If you have a um, Bobby Wagner and if you have a Richard Sherman and a Bobby, um, whatever that other taller cornerback was, if you have the pieces to work to make the defense work, that's great. But um, whenever you have your defense and you're kind of you stuck to it and um, you're real stubborn about, you know, running any kind of other play call and you don't have the players to do it, well, it doesn't work out. Shockingly, Doug Peterson is out in Philadelphia. Two years removed, or was it three years removed, from a Super Bowl. Quite astounding. Um, could be an early candidate for the Jets head coach. I don't know if they interviewed him, but the Jets uh, report out of there seems to be that they've had Robert Sala, the uh, Niners, the uh, very uh, um, popular and uh, energetic Robert Sala, the defense coordinator for the 49ers. He's been in to talk to the Jets. I think he's interviewed twice, and I think they're trying to work out a contract and hammer out some details as far as staff goes. I don't think the Jets want to let him leave the building before they lock him up. Don't even know where Doug Peterson might land, but apparently he went in for a end-of-the-season talk with the owner, Jeffrey Lurie, and GM Howie Roseman, and word is maybe the second time they got called back to have the postseason talk. It didn't kind of, it didn't go go quite so well. Um, Peterson had made a comment or was put out there that maybe he didn't like People telling him what to do or telling him how to coach or whatever. So he's out. And it looks like potentially the owner and Howie Roseman, the GM, are siding with Carson Wentz because that relationship was reported to be apparently fractured earlier. There was a report in Philadelphia that Wentz, Wentz's relationship with Peterson was indeed fractured. So perhaps Wentz can be coached up and, uh, and fixed. Does um, Douglas, if he hires, uh, back to the Jets, if Joe Douglas hires Robert Sala, um, he's done some impressive things, even though San Francisco's had a lot of players hurt on the defensive side of the ball. The next thing that they would have to do is sort of figure out who they would go for offensive coordinator to help Sam Darnold develop if they keep Darnold or if they decide to go ahead and draft another quarterback. But I believe the final straw was probably whenever for uh, getting back to Doug Peterson with the final straw, there it was whenever he pulled Jalen Hurts and inserted Nate Sudfeld into the last game of the season. I think he might have lost the team there, and maybe they went and complained to Jeff Lurie or Javier Roseman. But it seems to be here what happened in Philadelphia was a classic power struggle. And defensive coordinator Gus Bradley moves on from the Chargers to the Raiders, so he'll try to work on John Gruden's defense there. And uh, moving on to NCAA football, we had a Monday night national championship game between the Alabama Crimson Tide and the Ohio State Buckeyes. For the sixth time in the last 12 seasons, the Alabama Crimson Tide are the national champions of college football. Alabama earned a 52-24 win over the Ohio State Buckeyes on Monday night in the college football national championship, completing a perfect 13-0 season with one of the best offenses in history. It was the Devontae Smith show early, 
at Hard Rock Stadium in Miami Gardens, Florida. The Heisman Trophy winner put on a show and set a title game record with 12 catches and scored three touchdowns on the win. And that was basically only just through a half of football as a hand injury forced him off the field in the third quarter. But he did enough to give Alabama a 35-17 lead at halftime. The offensive onslaught continued in the second half as Mac Jones, the quarterback, finished with five touchdown passes despite injuring his leg, matching a career high and marking his eighth game with at least four scores this season. Alabama built a 28-point lead early in the fourth quarter on Najee Harris's third touchdown and never looked back. Now, Ohio State did hit Najee hard on one particular play, but he kept standing right up. He did not fall down. Dude is uncanny. He's unbelievable. Um, usually don't see running backs that are 6'2 and 230 or whatever he is, hurdle and do the stuff that he does from an athletic standpoint. It's just insane. Uh, he could even be better than Josh Jacobs, who was drafted by Gruden's Raiders. Um, but anyway, an insane amount of talent. Alabama does this every year. They just reload. Crimson Tide head coach Nick Saban secured his seventh national championship, passing Bear Bryant for the most in history. This was the second undefeated team after the 2009 tie finished 14-0. The Buckeyes uh, quarterback Justin Fields was held to only one touchdown. Ohio State couldn't keep up after uh, running back Trey Sermon was injured on the very first play of the game. What a kick in the balls. Um, Went to the hospital apparently to get a a shoulder to check out it might be a collarbone issue, whatever, but uh, that was huge because Trey Sermon had been their bread and butter there for the last few games, and especially whenever Justin Fields would struggle from time to time, they could always lean on their running game and Trey Sermon. And it wasn't completely terrible. Master Teague is a serviceable back, but it was too much offense from Alabama, and Ohio State could not keep up. They were out a few players, but um, just too much Alabama, too much, too much talent here. The Buckeyes were seeking their first championship since the 2014 season and finished 7-1. Justin Fields wasn't processing in this game as quickly as the semifinal against Clemson, where he looked fabulous. And if that would have been his last game, I'd say his NFL draft stock would have been through the roof. But unfortunately, that was not his last game. And uh, here we see that uh, Alabama is just going to have multiple first-round picks. We saw Jalen Waddell on the field coming back a little bit early, perhaps, from his ankle injury. Um, There's a lot of people getting on Twitter and social media saying that, what is he doing? Go ahead and hang it up. You're going to ruin your draft stock. You're going to lose yourself some money. But I also see a lot of GMs and team owners that's going to like this about the young man, that it's um, a big moment and he wants to help contribute to the team. And, you know, he didn't do anything to hurt the team. He did pick up some yards and some first downs. And it was good to see him get on the field. And then, okay, you're like, uh, I would have been like, uh, you know, okay, you got your catch. You got your first down. Okay, get over here on the sideline. He was noticeably limping in this one. Mac Jones, um, the way he plays and distributes the ball, he looks good because you're surrounded by first-round picks everywhere. And we're probably seeing that with Tua Tagovailoa. And there's rumors about um, maybe in Miami he's not as impressive as they thought that he would be. Um, But whenever it's a tough eval, whenever you're surrounded by first-round picks everywhere. So um, as the rumors have been floating that maybe Deshaun Watson – the uh, ridiculously talented quarterback for the Houston Texans is not happy there. What's going on with the franchise and the uh, continually uh, questionable hiring of personnel staff from New England. And then Watson apparently um, was told that he would have an input 
on coaching hires or GM hires or whatever, or who they might interview for the head coaching position. And then maybe they didn't heed what he was saying. And Houston at first was not going to interview uh, offensive coordinator for the Chiefs, Eric Bieniemy, but then now I hear they are. And if I'm Eric Bieniemy, I don't even know if I want to go there and be around that at all. I might just take pull my name out of the running for that gig. So there's some speculation that maybe the Houston Texans would trade Deshaun Watson to Miami for Tua and maybe a couple players or a couple picks, which is an interesting scenario um, because Houston does, uh, they need to rebuild and they don't have the picks to do it. Um, I'm sure Deshaun Watson would like to perhaps waive his no trade clause, just having a new contract that's not that old. Maybe he would like to move to Miami and play with some better players, perhaps for a better coach. And Brian Flores has been impressive with the Dolphins. And at this point, you know, it's not that Tua has been a bust. It's just been that now looking at him, it's like, I don't think he was worth the value of that fifth overall pick last year. So that's an interesting scenario to think about, although trade possibilities with that situation. Um, Getting back to this national championship game with Alabama, it was Steve Sarkeesian's uh, last game, and wow, did he call a great game. Um, Steve Sarkeesian, the offensive coordinator for Nick Saban, he's going to be moving on to Texas, but he called an outstanding game before he leaves for Texas. He schemed his stars open all game long. It's just, if you watch this offense, it's like, this is this offense could probably whip whip the tail of some I don't know, NFL defenses out there, some bad NFL defenses. I don't think that I think Alabama could have possibly beaten the Houston Texans here. Steve Sarkeesian did a great job of scheming his stars open. Najee Harris and Devontae Smith in particular. Mac Jones, he reminds me a lot of like a young Eli Manning. I don't know if it's because he wears number 10 on his jersey, but anyway. Bill O'Brien expected to, uh, his name has popped up in the running to replace uh, Steve Sarkeesian on Saban's staff. So once again, Saban taking in coaches, moving them to an analyst role, recycling them, rehabbing their image, and then maybe shipping them off again. But Saban is great at adapting, and kudos to Alabama. They don't just recruit well. The player development, remember? Devontae Smith probably could have been a first-round pick, and Jalen Waddell could have maybe, or Najee Harris could have been a first-round pick. And those guys have gotten even better because Saban – and his staff at Alabama are so good at player development. Moving on to some LSU news, a little swing and a miss. They missed out on the defensive coordinator I was hoping they could have snagged from Cincinnati. Marcus Freeman would have also added some diversity to the coaching staff as he is African-American, but they miss out on him. Um, they had him over for dinner. It was going well until Notre Dame swooped in and stole him in a shocking development. So um, it would have been great if Ed Argeron could have had this hire made by this time in the offseason, but LSU's back to the drawing board here a little bit. Um, I did hear that Marcus Freeman perhaps and his wife were um, tilting toward Notre Dame because of uh, the location near uh, family that would have been closer to some other family members instead of uh, picking up and moving to Louisiana. But LSU and coach uh, Ed Orgeron had courted Freeman, who flew into Baton Rouge for an interview um, last week. And um, had the hire been made, Orgeron would have um, signed each of his top choices for the team's biggest staff openings. Earlier in the week, LSU announced the hiring offensive coordinator Jake Peets and pass game coordinator DJ Mangus. Peets agreed to a two-year deal that pays him $1.2 million the first season, $1.3 million the next, and Mangus agreed to a two-year deal that pays him $400,000 per year, according to term sheets signed by both of those coaches. 
Details for Freeman's contract with Notre Dame have not seen those yet. But uh, the defensive coordinator position of the university has a $5 million endowment from the donation of an alumnus, which also helps Notre Dame uh, tab him. Um, the choice between Notre Dame and LSU didn't turn into much of a bidding war as much as had to do with the proximity of family. As we said earlier, that was a source close to the advocate stated, Orgeron and his staff will begin again in the pursuit of the team's next defensive coordinator. Um, some other news in college football, uh, Texas A&M quarterback Kellen Mond declares for the draft. Um, hello, undrafted free agency, which might be good for him. He can pick where he goes, but I've never seen a game where I've been overly impressed with Kellen Mond. Um, the Broncos have found their new GM, George Patton, and the Broncos have agreed to terms on a deal that makes Patton Denver's general manager, according to multiple reports. The GM job opened up when John Elway stepped aside from day-to-day personnel work, although he will continue to oversee the Browns' front office. Patton has spent 14 seasons with the Vikings, working as an assistant general manager under Rick Spielman. He also has spent time with the Bears and Dolphins. Now Patton will get to work on turning around a Denver team that hadn't been to the playoffs since Peyton Manning retired. Um, Let's see, moving on to some other news. Robert Sala, of course, we mentioned that, getting the interview with the Jets, which I think would be an outstanding hire if they can go ahead and lock him up. Um, he's always energetic and fun to see on TV anyway. And I think, you know, the opportunity to coach Quinn and Williams could, you know, to do Quinn and Williams a world of good. And uh, I think that Salah will probably have a lot of work to do drafting some players that um, his defense can excel with. He's not particularly married to that scheme that he runs and is very impressive what he did with the 49ers defense considering their uh, injuries. That will do it for this week's episode of the Football Gumbo Show podcast. Uh, man, it was great to have this football season because for a while there, we didn't even know if we would have a football season. But uh, big thanks out to SEC's commissioner, Greg Sankey, who, um, you know, stood strong, had a, had a spine of steel and said, you know what, we're going to try. We're going to try to carry on. We're going to try to modify things. We're going to try to move around games if we have to. And they just found a way to get it done. So kudos to also players like Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields with their social media activism and their hashtag we want to play um, those two guys probably did more than anybody to help make sure that we had a college football season and what a college football season it was I think um, in the discussion the broad discussion of this year's Alabama team versus last year's LSU football team which is the greatest national champion of all time I do think there's cases um, that we could both stress on both sides there's you know, different arguments to be made that are completely valid. Um, LSU is sort of like a, LSU one seemed really special because it seems like just like the perfect storm that all just came together with Joe Burrow, the transfer, um, and Joe Brady coming over from the Saints staff, and just the ridiculous transformation that their offense went through, going fifteen and zero, playing some very highly ranked teams, and also Alabama. It has to be said here for the amount of talent that Alabama has. And going undefeated, and also the closest that a team got to them was the Florida Gators in the SEC championship. But um, also, uh, kudos to Nick Saban. Uh, Alabama was one of the teams that probably did the best of uh, handling the COVID-19 pandemic and juggling all the protocols and such. At one point, Nick Saban, uh, they thought he had COVID, but he didn't. It was a false negative. So um, there's just a lot of kudos to go around to everybody, a lot of people for actually um, – or to, to put to putting on a football season. So I've enjoyed it. I can't wait to get back to you guys 
next week to talk about what's happened in the divisional round of the NFL playoffs. So um, Cajun Hillbilly is going to sign off here for this week's episode of the Football Gumbo Show podcast.